you'd prefer an up-close view than the one from behind the knife. When you prefer your conversation be more audible than the bleeding, that's when you know you'd rather be here, entire country. Join Milos Bahavitz, Joe DeBose, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk about trauma surgery, life, trauma surgery, powerboats, trauma surgery, cats, and the mandolin. You're listening to Tiger Country. Well, welcome back, everybody, to our latest episode of Tiger Country. My name is Dr. Milos Bruhovats, and I'm, of course, joined by Dr. Joe DeBose and Dr. Rishi Kundi. Uh, welcome to the podcast where we kick off our sneakers, cowboy boots, or Crocs, depending on the day. Roll oh, up Manolos. Our... Manolos? Manolos. <laughs> Dr. Stein is a shoe person. Yeah. Roll up our scrubs and and wade out into the tall reeds of tiger country and and this week we are honored to be joined by dr deb stein and her manolos to talk about neurotrauma and traumatic brain injury dr stein it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast um, i'll get things started uh, you know in the in the setting of trauma moving to pre-hospital care and the emphasis being on what we can do before patients get to us um, in the hospital. Do you have any advice on what our EMS colleagues should be doing if they suspect a traumatic brain injury? What does pre-hospital care look like for traumatic brain injuries? Yeah, so first of all, thank you for the invitation to be here. Really, um, I'm really thrilled. And so thank you. It's very nice to uh, be here with some, some old friends and some new friends. So thank you. Um, yeah, I actually have a, I have a lot of opinions about everything, so I'll try to limit my opinions to what's relevant to the discussion, um, as Dr. DuBose and Dr. Kundi know. Um, I think the pre-hospital environment is actually a really interesting one, and we just, in the interest of full disclosure, finished the newest uh, version of the PHTLS uh, book, and in fact, I co-authored the TBI chapter, so I got a little bit to say about this. I think the two main, three main things I'll say, one is... Um, uh, get the patient to definitive care or to as, as soon as possible. It's so intuitive and it's so obvious, but we know that just like in hemorrhagic shock, um, time to neurosurgical intervention is a huge, huge uh, a variable with respect to outcome in patients who have mass lesions that require evacuation. You could ar- make an argument that definitive care in patients who have um, severe traumatic brain injury without evacuatable mass lesions may benefit from earlier neurosurgical intervention with respect to ICP management or at least lowering of intracranial pressure, but Definitely, we know that that um, evacuation of mass lesions. The second thing is management of blood pressure. And this is something that we debated when we were writing the chapter. Um, the standard systolic blood pressure of, of greater than 90 is just completely ridiculous in the setting of brain injury. And so the number that we have settled on based on some observational data, large, large database observational data is greater than 110. We debated whether that needs to be weighed against this concept of permissive hypotension a patient who also has concomitant hemorrhage. And I don't know that we settled on an answer, but we decided to say 110, um, especially as we think about our geriatric patients. Um, and the older you are, obviously, the higher your blood pressure normally is. And so if we talk about cerebral perfusion, those patients, right, 110 is probably too low for some of our elderly patients as well, but, but, but definitely keep that blood pressure above 110. Um, the third thing I'll say is, is airway management. And again, the chapter is very clear to say it's not about endotracheal intubation. 
It's about assuring adequate oxygenation and ventilation. And those are not the same thing and they're not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. So if you can manage somebody's airway and make sure they are adequately oxygenating and ventilating, that's the ideal thing to do. It's going to be a resource issue. It's really hard to bag a patient bumping down the road for two hours. Don't get me wrong, right? So this is going to be a matter of where are you practicing? What's your level of comfort? But it's not just empirically, everybody needs to be intubated who has severe traumatic brain injury. The fourth thing I'll say is that there's actually some very nice observational data that demonstrates that kind of rule of everybody with a GCS less than nine needs to be intubated. There's actually two large database studies that have demonstrated patients with GCS of six, of seven and eight, six, seven, and eight, um, actually do worse if they have early, early, including pre-hospital or early in the hospital uh, intubation. So again, that's observational data. So hugely confounded. Please, please, I acknowledge that. But um, so that kind of rule that we all live and die by is not necessarily um, appropriate for all patients. Yeah, Deb, you always know the cutting edge stuff. That's why I love having on here. You're, you're so in the mix. You're the smartest neurotrauma provider that I personally know. And I'm not blowing smoke. In There's a lot room. of neurotrauma providers who will disagree with you, but, I, but I'll take it, Joe. I'll, 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 go, I'll go to war with whoever wants to go contrary with me. Um, but let me ask you this. So that's the pre-hospital environment. Now the patient's sitting in front of you. And I have my own little mental checklist, a lot of which I learned from you and watching you think about these things. You know, and, and, uh, do I give hypertonic? Do I give seizure prophylaxis early? Do I give TXA? And uh, how I got to get in the CT scanner to define the injury. What, what if you had to give somebody a little quick checklist for somebody who's new to these kind of uh, managing these patients, what things do they need to be thinking about in the ED? Yeah, that's a um, really loaded question. Um, and there's a lot of things. I think that the first thing is if you somebody dies from hemorrhage, you don't do anything good for their brain injury. And so um, unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but, but uh, hemorrhage needs to take priority and hemorrhage control needs to take priority in those patients who have polytrauma or concomitant hemorrhage. Number two, I really think that early after brain injury with one very, very notable exception that I'll talk about, it is all about a middle of the road approach. Normoxia, normotension, normocarbia, normothermia, right? You don't normo, normonatremia. I don't think that's actually a word, but it should be, um, right? You want you don't want big wide swings in any of this. We know that hypoxia is clearly bad for your brain, but so is hyperoxia. Hypoventilation when you get cerebral edema and worsening of, of hyperemia is bad for your brain, but so is hyperventilation and is cerebral ischemia. So in the absence of a very, very important uh, exception, these patients, I think, middle of the road. The important exception is those patients who are demonstrating signs and symptoms of imminent herniation. And there are two kind of um, types of patients I think about. Those patients who have evidence of, um, that is concerning for a unilateral mass lesion that, that likely requires evacuation. And that's gonna be unilateral pupillary abnormality, rapid decline in GCS and lateralizing signs. And those patients who are at imminent risk of dying from intracranial hypertension. And those are gonna be your patients, fixed non-reactive pupils, GCS of one or a motor score of one or two. Um, and then your Cushing's reflex, hypertension with bradycardia. Those patients get the kitchen sink. So no longer, no longer normocarbia. Those are the patients who are going to hyperventilate, right? They'll get ischemic. It's okay. I'll take care of it upstairs in the ICU if they're alive. Um, but those are the patients where you want to make sure that we do the kitchen sink approach, hypertonic mannitol, hyperventilation, and get them to intervention to prevent them from dying from their brain injury. 
Um, lots of debate in the literature about whether empiric hypertonic saline is beneficial or not. They're the only randomized trial I'm aware of um, demonstrated no benefit over normal saline, single dose, but it's hard to imagine that in patients who so much of their outcome is, is determined by their primary anatomic injury, that a single dose of anything is going to make a huge difference in a large majority of patients. There is probably a subset of patients in whom it does make a difference. And I think that there's little downside. I think that it's probably one of those things that's tolerated very well by most patients. It's a volume expander. We like that, right? The sodium is good for everything because we love sodium, right? So I think there's little downside to empiric hypertonic saline um, before you before you have uh, evident in patients who just have bad brain injury, right? Not patients who who are in those two those two patient populations I described. TXA. I don't know what to say about TXA anymore. Um, everybody's aware of the CRASH-3 trial. Anybody know what CRASH-1 was? Steroids are bad for brain injury. Yes. Everybody yeah. forgets that. Everybody's like, CRASH-2, CRASH-3, yeah. TXA. They, they jumped from the steroids to the TXA, didn't they? <laughs> they, they were like, well, that's not working. We got to find something that does. Um, so TXA, obviously, the CRASH-3 trial demonstrated benefit in patients who had, were, had suspicion of traumatic brain injury, but ironically, or not so ironically, those patients who had severe injury, i.e. the low GCSs and the patients who had pupillary abnormalities, had no benefit. Now, in all fairness, those of us that do this, when you have somebody who has an anatomically devastating injury, the chances that anything you do is going to significantly improve their outcome is not so good. It's those patients who are in the middle somewhere. So I think CRASH-3 is very instructive that, um, that there's definitely a subset of patients who, who probably benefited. It probably has nothing to do with the antifibrinolytic effects, which is kind of funny. Um, there was then obviously uh, the study that was done out of Oregon Health uh, OHSU that demonstrated benefit of a two gram regimen. There was actually a study that came out of Europe that demonstrated detriment in patients with isolated traumatic brain injury. So the short answer is I don't know. I think that if, if you are prolonged to definitive care, long field times, I think there's a little downside um, because you don't have a whole lot else that you can do. And so I think there's probably some set, some subset of patients that will benefit. I just don't think we know who those are yet. Yeah. Um, where I was in, at UCSF for a couple of years, the pre-hospital transport times are super, super short there. There was like no reason to use pre-hospital TXA in that patient population. But that's kind of where I, I'm currently living on TXA, but I'm looking forward to whatever additional data I can find that will sway me one way or the other. What about early seizure prophylaxis? That's part of my kind of cocktail thing. How soon? What, what do you give? Um, I, it probably, um, we, we use Keppra now. <gasps> Right, I know I was a dilantin girl for a long, long you time. You were a dilantin queen for that's a long what the, time. Well, that's what the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines stated, and it also yeah. was what the randomized prospective trials were done with. Right, um, not that necessarily Kepra was bad, but we knew dilantin worked. There's lots of lots of additional data that's come out that Kepra is perfectly fine, and now that it's off patent, it's not so, so much more expensive, so um, it's easy to dose. Um, that's definitely true. I think the early seizure prophylaxis seven days for all patients who have severe traumatic brain in, or who have blood in their head with the exception of isolated subarachnoid depressed. And then those patients with depressed skull fractures or penetrating brain injuries should all get early post-traumatic seizure prophylaxis. I'm not aware of any data that says how early you need to give it though, following injury. I mean, we typically give it in our trauma bay, but I don't, I'm not aware of any data that says if you give it two hours following injury versus six hours following injury, is there a significant increase in seizure risk? Certainly, yeah. at the time you identified a CT verified brain injury, giving post-traumatic seizure prophylaxis is uh, definitely warranted. I just, I don't, I don't have a time frame in my head. Early, early, yes, but I don't, I don't know if there's a difference in, again, an hour versus four hours. Yeah, I think Rishi's going to ask some questions about ICU management. One more thing I want to touch on and pick your brain about is... Yeah. 
I mean, you can't see somebody over the age of 55 that's not taking aspirin or some uh, advertised anticoagulant where people are playing in the park yeah. and golf. Um, how do you manage that in, that in the context of everything that's going on? Do you, when, do, when do you make the decision to, to use agents to counteract those adversal agents? And, and what mm -hmm. agents should we be using in the, in the current era? I think like anything else in critical care and in trauma, um, and I use this, I, I, I say this all the time, there's no such thing as a contraindication, there's just a bad risk-benefit ratio. And so I think that for all of these patients, you have to make a risk-benefit ratio based on the severity of their brain injury versus their indication for anticoagulation or antiplatelet agents. And I say that we, you know, a, a trivial brain injury in somebody who's on warfarin for a mitral valve right? As long as they're not, don't have a they're having a declining mental status, you do not need to reverse their cumulative. Um, that being said, as a general rule, patients who are on warfarin should have their warfarin reverse case centra. Patients who are on um, the non-Pradaxa DOAC should have their anticoagulation reversed with case centra or with um, the really expensive one, Adnexa, whatever it's called. Um, and then patients who are on Pradaxa should be reversed with Proxlind. Um, antiplatelet agents are much more complicated. And again, those are in patients who have, who have brain injuries that don't have a, that don't have a, a contraindication to reversal. Do, um, antiplatelet agents are a huge, huge problem. Um, as a general rule for patients for whom there is going to be a neurosurgical intervention, i.e. crany drain placement, subdural drain placement, um, probably giving platelets and DDAVP is probably okay if they are on aspirin. Um, interestingly, the PATCH trial uh, that you guys might be familiar with, might be familiar with, which was intracranial hypertension, uh, uh, non-traumatic intracranial hypertension, demonstrated worse outcomes in patients who were given platelets. Um, but most, it's hard to argue that if you're going to stick a drain in somebody, if you're going to stick something in somebody's head, or you're going to operate on them, that we should at least try to reverse the aspirin. Plavix is difficult. I was actually just talking to Gary Schwartzbauer, who's one of our neurosurgeons, and actually they just submitted some data that says Plavix is the highest risk for post-operative hemorrhage uh, in their patient population. I think we all kind of we all kind of see that anecdotally. I don't have a good answer. I guess give them platelets, but I, I think that's kind of you're kind of spitting in the wind at that point because obviously both aspirin and, and Plavix are irreversible inhibitors, and if they are on board, whatever platelets you give them are going to be irreversibly inhibited. So. Um, that's kind of where I, I land on that. It's uh, the, uh, the Plavix is a huge problem, especially for you vascular surgeons that are forcing it on everybody. Well, we operate through Plavix. That's, I mean, where would I be without Plavix? Yeah, well, we're going to operate on the brain. I'm not particularly fond of Plavix because it doesn't seem to work when you want it to. You know, there's a, a high rate of non-response and then when it does work, it's difficult to reverse. So I have been given um, very, very simple, very specific questions. Hey, Deb, how do you manage brain injury patients in the ICU? You've got three minutes. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Uh, just starting with the, the simplest one, tell me about hemodynamics. Uh, what should we be aiming for in these patients? Normotension. Every answer, I, every, every question you ask me, it's going to start with normo, whatever. Debbie, you used to have these monitors, though, that would show people CC, CPP and ICP, and it was a ele very elegant monitoring system there in the neurotrauma ICU, yep. and you gave great talks about how tracking those graphs and proceeding and managing these yep. elegant shifts. Is it really that simplistic, you think, just, just getting so, into it? Well, your baseline background ICU care is normal everything. 
normal temperature. Don't let them be don't let them have a fever. They don't need hypothermia. Don't let them be hypertensive. Don't let them be hypotensive. So routine ICU care for the patient with brain injury is normal everything. You could argue I want their sodium a little bit higher because we definitely don't want it low, but it's but normal's fine. Um, once you're talking about ICP management and CPP management, then things change a little bit, right? So you're talking about the patient who has a bad brain injury, but is not manifesting signs or symptoms of cerebral hypoperfusion or intracranial hypertension, normal everything. Once they start manifesting signs of intracranial hypertension, then there you want, it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter what you use as long as you use an algorithmic approach. And the um, TQIP, the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma TQIP guidelines, um, the Seattle brain injury uh, group that I was very fortunate to be part of, all recommend the same thing, a tiered algorithmic approach to ICP management. Typically, first-line therapy is going to be things like adequate sedation, analgesia. Um, uh, Second-line therapy is going to be things like if you have a Camino in a bolt, put it in BBD for CSF drainage. Um, you know, hypertonic saline, mannitol. Third-line therapy is decompressive craniectomy, that type of thing. Again, it, it, I, I'm not sure that the actual, what you actually do matters as much as what, what you do it in an algorithmically applied way because each patient responds to different things. And so you never know, you'll you hear the nurses like, well, this patient really likes their sodium of 150. You're like, oh, okay, well, then we should probably do that. Right? This patient likes a CO2 of 35. They don't like to have their CO2 of 38. Okay. Um, and I think that that's as important as anything else, because it's, I think an individualized approach can be as much is can be very, very helpful. And I, and I try not to be too cookie cutter, but you want to be algorithmic. I think at the same time, you want to balance those two things. All right. Um, speaking of, in, of normoxia, uh, you did mention uh, a few minutes ago that hypoxia or hyperoxia uh, is detrimental and standard ICU care um, they tend to go for super physiologic oxygen tension. Maybe in your ICU. Well, no, okay. Not in our ICU. But it's, it's not, in all fairness, his ICU is my ICU. So. Yeah. so can you tell me a little bit about the deleterious effects of uh, hyperoxemia? In the oh gosh! Uh, wow, uh, that's like a whole. That's like a whole hour in and of itself. So, and I want to be clear: normobaric hyperoxia. I should have been more specific because there is actually some data and the, um, the uh, Hobbit trial is currently going on right now that is looking at hyperbaric hyperoxia and potentially beneficial effects. So um, why is hyperoxia bad for the brain? I think hyperoxia is bad for the, bad for the brain. Normal baric hyperoxia is bad for the brain, just like it's bad for any other cell in your body, but right? it's not physiologic. It, it causes all sorts of evil humors to be secreted. <laughs> um, uh, the data is, and actually, we actually had some data from our institution, ironically, when Megan Brenner was a fellow a billion years ago, that actually just observational data that looked at patients who had super normal um, PO2s, and they, their outcome was also poor in addition to those patients who were hypo hypoxic. Um, that being said, uh, I don't know the exact mechanism between why hyperoxia is bad for all the cells in your body, and I would suggest to you that current ICU care for even for non-traumatically brain injured patients is typically normoxia for those patients as well, and minimizing our FiO2 as much as possible to maintain normal PO2 levels and not super, super physiologic. Um, is there, are there any particular ventilator modes uh, that you favor in the context of brain injury? Dr. Finney, um, uh, normal ones. Um, I, I'm a big fan, so depending on the severity of the brain injury, 
Yeah. I think if you have somebody who has tenuous intracranial pressure, tenuous cerebral hypoperfusion, tenuous, tenuous cerebral perfusion, then obviously you want to maintain, use whatever will maintain that normal, normoxia, normocarbia. Um, we typically will use some version of a pressure regulated volume control mode as a general rule, but um, I'm a big fan of patients who do not either have very severe injury or not requiring a lot of sedation. I'm a big fan of spontaneous ventilation. I think patients are really good at regulating what they need, and I think they tend to do better, and they, they tend to get less diaphragmatic atrophy and all that stuff, but it depends on severity. I'm obviously not going to let a patient be hypoventilatory if they have, if they're, if they have tenuous ICPs. You want to ask me about APRV? I, I really um, wasn't even going there. <laughs> so my one-line statement on APRV is, um, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it if you look at any old... any any textbook that was written a while ago, um, it will tell you that APRV is contraindicated in patients of intracranial hypertension. And I would suggest to you that elevated intrathoracic pressure, which reduces cerebral venous drainage, can cause an elevation of intracranial pressure. That's a true statement. However, if you improve somebody's pulmonary compliance with alveolar recruitment, you lower intrathoracic pressure and improve cerebral venous drainage. So it applied correctly, it is perfectly safe to use. Okay. Uh, you did talk about Keppra. I am something that comes up quite often when we are rounding in neurotrauma. I am not consistently clear on the line when a patient with a brain injury is poorly responsive because that's their original injury, or when someone says, well, you know, they might be having a subclinical seizure and yeah. we should go down that route. What should we be looking for? Uh, when we do the EEG or what, what it would be the indications to do the what EEG? Would, what would be the indications for the EEG? And when do you just start treating prophylactically? Um, so I would not treat seizures prophylactically, right? They should get, all be getting seizure prophylaxis to prevent mm -hmm. seizures. Um, in the absence of EEG findings with seizures, I would not increase their Keppra, give them a second agent. Um, I think that the two, I think we're very liberal with EEGs now, as, as I think we should be. I think there's a fair bit of data that talks about subclinical status was, was we didn't recognize that a lot, we had a lot of patients who probably had subclinical status that was contrib contributing to their overall status, um, excuse the pun, um, and uh, those patients probably do better with, with EEG monitoring. Um, as a general rule, anybody who has an exam that is out of proportionally bad with what you would expect based on the anatomy of their injury, um, all, those patients should all have EEG monitoring. And I would suggest that any patient who is really comatose that's not, that doesn't wake up when you turn, on, turn off their profile and at least do something that's consistent with their brain injury, uh, doing at least a short, short duration of EEG monitoring is associated. I'm not aware that it's associated with any detriment and certainly ruling out that somebody that, it, that they don't have subclinical status is obviously appropriate. And again, it's, it's much, much easier to do and to get these days. And so it's pretty routine now to just say, let's just take it off the table. Okay. Um, Hi, Kitty. Yeah, they, they would like to join in. Um, let's talk about DVT prophylaxis. Uh, <laughs> so my cats have an opinion on DVT. Yeah, I'm sure they do. You want to talk about DVT prophylaxis now or later? Uh, I think right ah! now. Right now. Oh my God, gonna... dad joke from DeBose. Oh my God, that was change. so bad. <laughs> so when when do you balance the patient's brain injury against the need for for dvt prophylaxis and when are you going to call for a filter 
Oh, never. <laughs> Sorry, that was the easy one. Oh, um, no, no. It, it's not like we love to put them in, but please. Um, no, so I think there's actually a fair bit of data on this now, um, observational, but I think that everybody agrees that it is completely safe in those patients who have um, who don't who have non-severe traumatic brain injury, meaning by and I, severity, I don't who are not significantly neurologically compromised with a ton of blood in their head, those patients can all get can all get DDT, chemical DVT prophylaxis 24 hours after a stable CT. I think we have plenty of data that suggests that that is safe. What comes up a lot, and I was just on a call where we were debating this actually, is those patients who you're either monitoring or you're worried they're gonna need a crany. I think there's a lot of opinion about this and there's not great data on this. Um, we here at Shock Trauma will do DTE prophylaxis after 48 hours for all patients. Our neurosurgeons, they don't mind operating with Lovenox on board. We wait 48 hours. I don't know why it's not 24, but it's 48. That's fine. Uh, it's better than the two weeks that that many places deal with. Um, but I think people are all over the place with this. And I, we were just on this call, and some people were talking about how they only use unfractionated heparin in their patients with brain, with severe brain injury. And some, pla some places um, are still waiting a protracted period of time. I will tell you here at Shock Trauma, we use 48 hours for all of our patients after stable CT. Uh, I think we could go earlier with some patients, very much so. And we have not, certainly everybody has their anecdote, but we have not noticed an increase in uh, delayed intracranial hemorrhage in, those, in that patient population, even in those that are instrumented. And I don't think there's any role for prophylactic filter in brain injury. Thank you. Um, we mentioned ICP monitoring briefly, but <clears throat> shed a little light on how on the algorithm that you use, that you prefer for management of the elevated pressures that you alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, it's, you know, every, you, every, every place that does any significant volume of brain injury should have an algorithm, a guideline that they use, a tiered guideline. Again, first-line therapy, things like analgesia and sedation, EVD placement, hyperosmolar therapy kind of gets you into second-tier therapy. Um, and then you start talking about things like hyperventilation, deep compressive craniectomy, um, and other things. So it's, I, I can talk about the three, thing, three things that live in your rigid fixed skull, and you got to decrease the volume of one of those three, CSF, brain, or blood. But I know that won't be interesting to anybody except me. So, um, but basically, you the algorithmic approach is basically you do the least in, the least detrimental things first, the least invasive, le least risk things first, and then you progress along that algorithm as the intracranial hypertension gets worse. You progress along that algorithm to do things that have a higher have a different risk benefit ratio associated with them. Does that make sense, Capricia? I'm not trying to be vague. It's just it's literally like I could talk about this for a really long time. No, no, it makes complete sense. Thank you. Dr. Stein, there's, there's some data out there about, you know, the role of hypothermia in these patients with elevated intracranial pressures. Is that something that you think we should be pursuing or is the hard line normal? Everything is normal? <clears throat> yeah, so, yeah, sorry to interrupt. So there have been now five ran large randomized multicenter trials all of whom have either de demonstrated detriment of, of induced therapeutic hypothermia or no benefit um, and were, it were terminated at interim analysis because of futility. Um, so that is a massive cat ratio, it's a little scary. Um, it looks... um, and so I really feel that therapeutic hypothermia has no role um, in a population-based way to manage uh, malignant intracranial hypertension. 
However, you have to do, you have to take care of the patient that's in front of you. And I, and I always am a little bit reluctant to apply population-based data to an individual patient in front of me. And so you definitely have individual patients who have anatomically, uh, anatomic lesions that would be amenable to a decent prognosis, meaning they don't have devastating secondary brainstem injury. Um, and they're having intractable intracranial hypertension and you've done everything else and the kid's 16 years old. Am I going to tell you not to, not to cool that kid? Absolutely not. But I would suggest to you the data does not support using uh, therapeutic hypothermia, either prophylactically or as part of your tiered algorithmic approach. No, that's, that's, that's perfect. Sort of in that similar vein of, of, of things that might not be applicable on a larger population basis. There are these newfangled machines, neuromonitoring, the jugular venous oximetries, brain tissue oxygenation. There are several of these products available out there. Is there a time when you reach for those over the conventional intracranial monitoring systems? Is there benefit? What can I tell the reps to stop bothering me about this stuff? What do I do? Um, so remember the only randomized prospective trial of intracranial pressure monitoring also demonstrated no benefit um, from a, uh, an outcome perspective. That I'm obviously talking about the best trip trial done outside the United States. Lots of caveats about generalizability. Um, so I would suggest to you that, that all of these things that we potentially do, we don't have good data that suggests clear benefit in a population-based way. Um, you know, I think that the most of these ancillary monitors, cerebral blood flow, jug bulb oxygen monitors, um, cerebral microdialysis is another one. Um, I think that all of them, with the with one very notable exception, uh, have really failed to demonstrate outcome benefit in uh, in trials. So I don't think any of them replace intracranial pressure monitoring as kind of our standard of care. Um, but the one notable exception to this is brain tissue oxygen monitoring. And you're probably familiar with the BOOST 2 trial, which was obviously a, a phase two study that actually demonstrated suggestion of benefit from an outcome perspective uh, with the ancillary use of, of brain tissue oxygen monitoring with ICP monitoring. And they used a, a kind of a four square approach where if you have low ICP, high PBR2, you don't do anything, low ICP, low PBR2, you treat the oxygen, you, you improve the oxygenation, high ICP, uh, high PBR2, you treat the ICP, and then if you have both, you treat both. Um, and so there's a phase three trial that's going on right now, boost three. Many of the people who are listening are probably, their, their uh, facilities are probably part of that, that trial. Um, so kind of compelling that the early, early studies that were not powered to detect a, a benefit um, detected some suggestion of benefit. So very much looking forward to the results of Boost 3. You're, you're muted. Right, I have my mute button on. I was so mesmerized by uh, Rishi's cats that I was <laughs> them, so I had to turn the volume off. Um, the uh, one last ask you question, coagulopathy. What should we be using to test and assess for that? Um, is TEG useful in the ICU environment? What, yeah, what's, I, what's your approach? Um, you know, it's funny. We don't do a lot of tags for specifically for brain injury. Um, I think early on when the patient comes up from the OR, I think it can be very helpful uh, for those patients who really have coagulopathy that is um, as a result of their brain injury. Um, I, I like TEG overall to monitor for coagulopathy. I think, to be honest with you, I think our anesthesiologists have gotten so good at managing these patients intra-op when they're getting their cranies that we don't see a ton of patients who come up and they're profoundly coagulopathic unless they have underlying like cirrhosis. 
Um, and those patients clearly are problematic. Uh, and, and I think tech is a great way to monitor those patients. Okay, well, now let's shift to kind of the way we talk about the vernacular we use uh, in the modern era for brain injury and, and the, the, you know, the potential impact that has on outcome. This Glasgow coma, I, I mean, I know the, the old school 1974 Glasgow coma score, uh, and I use that, and that's my algorithm to go to, but the Glasgow coma 40 has been around for a bit now. What, what is that? Why should we pay attention to it? And how can it potentially change the management? Yeah, I, I, I freely admit you, I'm not super familiar with it. We don't use it um, here, so I can't, I don't have any particular expertise. My understanding is that it's not so much the number that it gives you, but it's the algorithmic way you obtain those numbers that I think can be very helpful. So for example, I think you start with like observing the patient, like you don't have to go over and do like a you know, sternal rub on everybody. Um, yeah. And it walks you through kind of the way to, um, to get those numbers to then like, or then generated. But that's, that's basically my sum total knowledge about it. And I apologize, I just don't know enough about it or about whether there's any yeah. evidence-based benefit of its use over a standard routine GCS. You know, I, I don't use it either, but I know in 2000, beginning of 2019, TQIP started collecting that or made the data points available for entry. It's just, I wonder if anyone's clinically using it. Um, I'm not, not that I know of, and I haven't heard it talked about. And I, I, I sit in a number of TBI circles and I haven't heard people talk yeah. about it. It's kind of like the four score you may be familiar with. We were actually just having this conversation. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, uh, we're redoing the ATLS, the 11th edition of ATLS now, or we're, we're starting, and I'm in the disability group for that. We were just having a conversation, should we start recommending not using GCS? And that, that, this didn't come up, and that was a room of really, 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 uh, everybody other than me was a really smart neurointensivist or neurosurgeon. So well, I'll it, ask I, them now, because I'm I'll, now it, I'm curious. I'll say it now, if you don't know about it or don't use it, then it's not worth uh, talking about it any longer. But what about the big criteria? That was developed in Arizona. Yeah, that we I, I we here to Austin when I arrived. Every brain injury is big one, two, three, and and that does kind of guide our care. You know more about the history of that than I do, uh, and kind of how it's being used across the country. What is big criteria, and how should it be utilized? Yeah, so this is the brainchild of Bilal Joseph um, out in Tucson. Um, Bilal's done a really impressive job of kind of had an idea and really has walked, if you wanted like a nice example of how to walk through answering a scientific question in a systematic way, it's a really nice example of how to do that. Um, but basically now there is multi-center data that validates um, that the big criteria, big one, two, three, with brain injury guidelines, what big stands for. Bilal's all about his cute acronyms, as is our good friend, Dr. DuBose, by the way. If you ever need a, a name for a study, call Joe. It's a gift, it's a gift. It is a gift. Um, and so basically patients who have, and I'll just say big one, which are basically trivial brain injuries. So these are not patients who are neurologically compromised. These are not patients on anticoagulation. These are patients who have a whiff of blood in their head. Um, those patients not only do not require transfer to the level one trauma center, but they don't even really require observation. They don't require routine uh, repeat imaging. I think that many of us are applying those criteria in level one trauma centers to our own patients. Hey, I can send you home from the ED. I think the sell to the community has been much, much, much more complicated. And I think that in some places, I'm in Maryland, it's a super small state, right? It's really easy. Like there is no hospital in the state, in the state that can't come to me and be back home again in 45 minutes, basically. Yeah. Some notable exceptions. When you're out in the middle of nowhere though, if we can say, yeah, if we can tell people, hey, you really don't need to send this patient. I promise you it's okay. 
Um, I don't know. I'd be curious to know. I mean, what's your what's your experience been? Are they no, can they? no, no. I will I will talk to folks. I, I will tell them. I will have the neurosurgeon talk to them, and they will call me back and say, "Yeah, I I still want to transfer." I, so I I don't understand what you're telling me. I just had this. Literally, was on call Sunday night. Just had this conversation with a referring physician at an outside hospital. Trace subdural hematoma. Health young healthy person, and I said who had already had a repeat CT scan at six hours because it took us so long to get the patient. And they still insisted the patient had to come. And I, anyway, so I think that that's really been the problem is really getting our, our community hospitals and our non-level one trauma centers who don't have neurosurgical capabilities are completely paranoid that these patients are going are to progress. It's the same calls that we're getting about patients who have trace pneumothoraces that we don't have a thoracic surgeon. Yeah. I don't know if you get those. We still get those. So, do you, think, do you think this helped the relationship though with the neurosurgery in when they do get to our center, the ones that come to Novo to shock trauma, or we don't have to drown the neurosurgery resident on call with these things? Yep. I mean, we still are. <laughs> so I freely admit we haven't. We have not. We're, we have not been early adopters. Um, but I think that it has the real potential to really change the way the patients get managed in the hospital. I mean, meaning I feel pretty comfortable saying this is a trivial, I can use the criteria, I can say this is a trivial subarachnoid or trivial subdural, you can go home. Um, yeah. And I, I think that, that, I think we have good data to support that. I will say the potential downside to this, which actually just came up at a uh, NASM forum that I'm part of, um, and Odette Harris, who's a neurosurgeon out in Stanford, unbelievably smart person, was talking about the concern that she has, which I think is very valid, is that, Remember, most patients who have brain injury who suffer long-term sequelae do not have severe traumatic brain injury. So these patients who have anatomically trivial lesions have the potential to have significant long-term cognitive effects, i.e. the mild TBI patients. And her concern, which I, I really hadn't thought about and I really think is really important, is that are we gonna lose these patients in the system and find out that they later are having significant post-concussive symptoms or confusional states or problems with memory or whatever. I mean, we know now from the track TBI data, mild TBI is not a mild problem. Um, and there's a, a not insignificant percentage of these patients that will go on to long-term sequelae. And if we don't plug them into our systems that know how to manage that, we have the potential to really miss some pathology. And so it's, a, it's an unintended consequence a potential unintended consequence of what is a, a really good idea and a really, really positive step forward. Yeah. Well, Deb, every time I talk to you about neurotrauma, I get smarter. I know everybody else here who's been listening gets smarter. What I'd like to do, though, is close with our traditional kind of random questions. And I didn't get too crazy with you. Um, maybe because this is, I haven't had a chance to visit with you for a while. I missed AST this year. So I, I want to take a little bit. I was looking for you. Um, You've now lived and worked, as you mentioned, uh, in both Pacific, a stone's throw from both Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. So everybody has that retirement home on the beach plan somewhere. Is yours going to be East or West Coast? Oh, gosh. I'd well, be know, rich enough to have to, both. You don't have to throw one under the bus. What did you love about? What so, do you love about? Yeah. We loved, loved living in San Francisco. I mean, it, my husband and I are food and wine people, and so... You know, the ability to go up to Napa for an afternoon and, you know, it, it was great. And the food, you, you cannot get a bad meal in San Francisco. You really can't. It's, um, love that. Baltimore is not exactly the food mecca of the East Coast. Although, although we're getting, uh, don't give me that look, Richie. Um, so, uh, but I, I, I was born, I grew up on the East Coast and, and I love like New England and I love Four Seasons and I love snow and the leaves changing. 
So I'm torn. Um, if I could have both, I would. Because I, I will tell you, the Pacific Coast is just an unbelievably beautiful place. Yeah. Um, just gorgeous. But um, I like, I missed having seasons. So, yeah. um, so I kind of am torn. I definitely, definitely would not be somewhere super hot all the time. That much I'll tell you. So. You mean fog isn't a season? I mean, UCSF, right? Fog we, used to, we used to joke that it was either 62 and hot or 62 and cold. <laughs> so you, you, you name dropped, or you dropped, you mentioned of your husband, Kelly, who's a general surgeon, one of my favorite people to hang out with. I look forward to having cocktails with him again because he's just so fun to hang out with. But the, both of you are busy surgeons. And I, uh, I come from a two semi provider. My wife is a nurse practitioner. And I, I have a hard time, we come, have a hard time coming home and not talking about work, you know? So how do you, and it's probably worse for two surgeons. So how do you make that, is that a problem? How do you make that transition? Does it take like a half a glass of wine before you transition to other discussions or what's your tips? Um, you know, I actually say Kelly and I enjoy talking about cases together. Like what he does is very different than what I do. He's as, as you know, he's an MIS guy. So he's doing a lot of elective cases, but you know, I like it. It's actually kind of fun. He'll call me, he'll be on call and he'll call me, you know, from the ED and he'll be like, Hey Deb, I'm seeing this patient. You can take a look at this CAT scan for me. You know, so actually we actually talk about work a lot because we enjoy, he's a super smart guy. And so I value his opinion. Um, but as a general rule, like anything else, you don't want to get bogged down in your work and you certainly don't want to be bringing your work home all the time. So I, I think that it's a, it's a healthy balance of, um, of just being conscious about not dragging your work home. Now, that being said, I will tell you, it's super helpful to have a spouse who is so supportive and gets what we do, even though he doesn't take 36 hours of call or 24 hours of call plus 12 hours of covering service. When I get home, we have... you. <laughs> you, I think Joe and Lucy know this, but we have we have Princess Day. Princess Day is post call Saturday or Sunday, typically post call Sunday, where I get to come home and be the princess. I don't have to do anything. I get brunch made for me. I get dinner made for me. So I, I am married to a a truly truly remarkable human being who treats me incredibly well, um, but understands that when he texts me and I'm working, I don't text him back. He doesn't get worried or get mad, right? I so, have to make sure my wife doesn't listen to this episode. <laughs> oh, Princess Day, it's a thing. Everybody should get it. You can have Prince Day too. It's okay. I'm no. not trying to be, it's not, it's not gender, it's completely gender neutral. It just means you get treated like gold. So, but um, um so yeah, uh, we, um, it's a good, it's a good mixture. Beauty and the Beast analogies aside, um, I know you're also a big pet person. We've seen Reese's cats crawling over him with no boundaries, <laughs> as he's prone to let them do. Um, with, they're more dogs than cats, but you are definitely a dog person as long as I've known you. Yep. So tell me, what is it? And I have seen you uh, swoon over those puppies. Uh, they're not puppies. They're big dogs uh, and treat them so wonderfully. What is it about dogs in particular you think make is so special about them? And, and what do you do with them to keep them happy, happy, and happy? So that's the beauty about dogs, right? You don't have to do anything to keep them happy. <laughs> they're happy. They're they're just happy to spend time with you, right? It's like so. For those of you who don't know me, I don't like children. I don't think you're allowed to admit, you're I, no, see, to admit that. I will push back on that. I have seen you around children. Okay. You're actually it may be short intervals. But short intervals, or good. if they're behind thick glass. <laughs> I don't like the noises that they make. Like it's like so, that squealy noise. What is that? Like stop. 
So you they're said all, they're all sticky. That's the other thing. They're all sticky. Yeah, they're, they're sticky and they're snotty. <laughs> so if there was anyway. a toddler zoo, you would go to the toddler zoo. You just would go <laughs> right. As as long as I understand. You'd knock on the glass. Bad idea. That's not a bad idea at all. <laughs> it's called daycare, my friend. So it's it's combination exactly. daycare and you know, tourist attraction. Dude, your cat's totally doing Peloton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no boundaries. No boundaries. So what do you, um, do you take them? Do you guys go on walks or runs? Yeah, we our dogs go up everywhere with us. It's one of the things when we lived in San Francisco, we went we went to dog friendly wineries all the time. They would like hang out with us, like sit under the table. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a my my girls. Unfortunately, we just lost we just lost Violet a couple of weeks ago, oh, but um, um, we still have Poppy though, and she's a mess, and um, she's our pandemic puppy, so she's like a disaster. Yeah. Um, but they're just, you know, that's the thing about dogs, right? It's like there was, I once read, there was a Time Magazine article, like the things that we could learn from our pets. And it's like, your dogs are happy to see you, even if you were only gone for three seconds, taking out the garbage. Like, oh my God, you came back. You do love me. It's like this unconditional, just, you know, it's, yeah. it's for me and for Kelly, it's, um, they are our children. We treat them like our children. People think we're a little weird, but, um, if you're a dog person or a, or a pet person, you get it. Um, yeah. they're just, they're just un the unconditional love. And, and I have Bernie's mountain dogs or Bernie's mountain dog. And they're, they're just bred for love. So they're just, they're, they shed like crazy, but, <laughs> but mm. it's just, it's the ability to come home and just snuggle up with a creature. That's going to just love on you. Can't, yep. can't beat it. Yeah. You can't be, you can't beat it at all, but I'm, don't pretend you're not a, a kid person. I've seen you as little kids. You're, you're, you're kid. um, Deb, it's been, uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time. We know your time is valuable and you're very busy such a joy to hear you talk about this stuff and thanks so much for entertaining our questions everybody who has heard this is better for having done so i know i am um we really want to thank you for 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 joining us well thank you guys i really really do appreciate the invitation and to be in with fun i enjoyed i enjoyed it so thank you very much hope i didn't say anything too stupid oh <laughs> uh, yeah i've never heard you say anything stupid i've heard you say things angry but never stupid um if anybody, again, welcome. thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, Milos is our new chairman of the board for the podcast. So, you know, Milos, we ought to think about starting to put your contact information, or at least we could dust off the old email for people to give us ideas about what to ask and who to talk to. Um, but this has been the Tiger Country Podcast, and thanks for joining us. You guys want to sign off, Rishi and uh, Milos? Oh, bye, everybody. Yeah, th thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, Dr. Stein, thank you so much. Thank you so much to the incredible Dr. DuBose and Dr. Kundi for providing us with uh, a wealth of knowledge as usual. And we will see everybody next time here on the Tiger Country podcast. Goodbye. You've been listening to Tiger Country. On behalf of Milos Bohavitz, Joe DeBose and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case, this doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon.